To provide and maintain a navy makes a contemporary compelling case for the timeless doctrine of peace through strength. Every policymaker should keep a copy on their office shelf. Congressman Jim Banks, House Armed Services Committee. To provide and maintain a navy represents a solid, coherent addition to the present international dialogue regarding sea power in the new era of great power competition. Hendricks places himself amongst the front rank of geostrategists, a must-read for serious national security thinkers. Admiral James Stravitas, USN retired, former Supreme Allied Commander, NATO. Dr. Jerry Hendricks is one of the nation's leading navalists, presents a provocative essay on the crucial importance of sea power in current great power competition, why the oceans represent the new heartland of geostrategic competition, and why the rapid rebuilding of the U.S. Navy is critical to maintaining global peace through American strength. Hugh Hewitt, author and radio host. Today on the Surgical Fiction Podcast, the former Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, and his foreword to this insightful and compelling naval treatise. Foreword by John Lehman, former Secretary of the Navy. As doctor and retired Navy captain, Jerry Hendricks lays out so well in his timely and incisive analysis, history has certainly moved on from our late 20th century victories in the Cold War and Operation Desert Storm. New threats to our country, its prosperity, and way of life have clearly emerged now from what he aptly terms the Second Interwar Period. We are now squarely in the midst of a new great power competition, indeed, a second Cold War, with China and Russia, while also confronting other hostile actors in Iran and North Korea, and Middle Eastern terrorists as well. Meanwhile, as those threats have been growing, we and our allies have cut back far too drastically on our own defense capabilities, especially at sea. Force levels have been slashed, budgets cut, exercises trimmed or canceled, and training and maintenance pared back. As a result, deterrence of our adversaries, reassurance of our allies and partners, and sustainment and protection of the successful global political, economic, and military system instituted after World War II have all deteriorated. It does not have to be that way. We in the Navy faced a parallel situation 40 years ago, but by mobilizing the financial, technological, conceptual, and military resources of our country and its allies, we developed a coherent and realistic strategy, achievable and balanced force goals, and the hard-headed, competitive procurement measures that were necessary to push back successfully against the Soviets at sea. In doing so, our morale rose to winning heights. The Chinese and Russians of 2020 are not, of course, clones of the Soviets of 1981. But the broad outline of their expanding global threat is similar, and similar as well to the 1940 Axis Agreement between Nazi Germany, Italy, and Japan. Iran has now joined the China-Russia anti-U.S. axis and now regularly participates in joint military and naval training exercises with them. Threats grow before our eyes. While funding still lags, America's material and intellectual resources today remain strong indeed preeminent, but they do need to be focused, mobilized, 
directed, and deployed correctly. First, we need a strategy, clear and unequivocal. In keeping with the nature of the U.S. Naval Service, it needs to be aggressive, offensive, fast-reacting, lethal, sustainable, global, forward, joint when it matters, and allied. We developed such a strategy in the 1980s, the Forward Maritime Strategy, that described what we were about in peacetime and in the face of crises, and what we planned to carry out should deterrence fail and war fighting at sea and from the sea commence. The strategy we need now, as then, must be informed by the very best intelligence, including views from outside the intelligence community, as to what our adversaries have in the way of capabilities, as well as goals and intentions. The strategy must not be a replay of the Cold War. It must be directed at the extreme vulnerability of the economies and commerce of the Axis, and not pursue the strategy that they expect from us and are building their forces to defeat. The strategy needs to be specific enough so that operational commanders and resource sponsors alike are able to figure out what to keep and use, what to discard, and what to build. We know how to do this. We've done it before. We can do it again and then broadcast it far and wide, with appropriate security caveats, so that it too becomes the dominant tool of deterrence, reassurance, global economic system maintenance, and warfighting. The strategy should provide broad guidance on what it seeks to accomplish, to deter hostilities in the first place, but if that fails, to protect U.S. and allied forces, sink enemy combat and merchant fleets, selectively attack targets ashore using both kinetic and non-kinetic means, blockade and mine their harbors and seaports, and interdict and shut down their commerce from air, submarine, surface ships, and some of the 25,000 islands in the Pacific that cannot be pre-targeted by the Axis. These islands will soon be unpredictably accessible by the brilliant new configuration and capabilities of the U.S. Marines integrated in the modernizing U.S. Navy and its global allies. The strategy should make clear that cover and deception will be key to its success, i.e., if they don't know where we are, they can't hit us. The strategy should be executable at longer ranges than the maritime strategy of the 1980s was given the development and deployment over the past few decades of modern Russian and Chinese long-range missiles and aircraft, in part in reaction to the U.S. maritime strategy of the 80s. The strategy should be robust, flexible, and prepared for unexpected breakthroughs and setbacks, unanticipated threats or domestic consideration, neutrals who join us, allies who don't, and so on. So, strategy first then a realistic, sufficient, and achievable force goal, each element of which is derived from the strategy. For us, it was 600 ships, including 15 carrier battle groups, 100 attack submarines, 100 frigates, and more, capable of carrying out all the Navy's anticipated warfare areas identified in the strategy. Strike, amphibious, anti-air, anti-submarine, electronic warfare, blockade, and the like. The 600-ship goal was the result of a decade of discussions, analyses, exercises, and war games. Lots of alternatives were examined. We got a lot of help on that from outside the Navy, 
but we thought our numbers were solid enough to enable us to back them consistently, year after year, giving operational commanders, program managers, and contractors sufficient stability to plan, build, and equip the force rapidly and efficiently. Tweaking the force goal year after year while chasing every new shiny object brought forth by everyone from warfighters to futurists to scientists to politicians would have been ruinous. As Dr. Hendricks points out, carriers will remain essential in the U.S. fleet, but they won't necessarily be the supercarriers of the maritime strategy and the 600-ship Navy. Navy decision-makers should examine, for example, the virtues for the 21st century of midway-class-sized diesel-slash-gas turbine carriers with adequate protection against hypersonic and ballistic missile hits, as well as a new technology, non-nuclear submarine, lethal and affordable in large numbers. And given the longer ranges needed to execute the strategy, the force goal should give priority to new long-range carrier aircraft with new long-range missiles, just as it had in the 1970s and 80s. The Navy will also need Dr. Hendricks's recommended 456-ship fleet of frigates, corvettes, and smaller amphibious ships to patrol and police the world oceans but easily integrate into fleet warfighting formations should the need arise. Next, the program to carry out the strategy needs to be affordable. Whatever the force goal required, it will cost a lot of money. The Navy must demonstrate to the American people and the Congress that they are getting the most bang for their bucks. The way to do that is clear. We did it in the 1980s. Central to the effort must be revitalizing cost-cutting competition and ending the practice of awarding sole-source contracts to monopolies who tend to be entrenched opponents of innovation and cost control. Ship designs should be such that they can be competed year after year between at least two yards, not awarded to only one entitled and stodgy builder. Service lives should be extended. For example, for the most modernized, latest Los Angeles-class attack submarines. Constant design changes and gold plating need to be rigorously opposed, with hard-nosed procedures in place to do so automatically and routinely. While demonstrating its affordability bona fides, the Navy and proponents of increased U.S. naval power in politics, academia, analysis, and industry should argue for a larger slice of the defense budget pie doubtless necessarily at the expense of U.S. ground forces and the so-called Fourth Estate. The strategy will demand it, and the appropriate force goal will require it, even with strict affordability measures in place. The Western Pacific is the inner German border of the 21st century, and the Navy should receive a bigger share accordingly, to build the ships and aircraft and weapon systems that take on the Chinese in what they consider their home waters, while keeping the peace and upholding good order at sea worldwide and preventing the Chinese and Russians from establishing their own rules for the global economic system. A good first step would be reversing the decision to exempt the Army and defense agencies from paying their fair share of the Strategic Nuclear Fund, currently burdening only the Navy, Marines, and Air Force. Finally, the Navy that will carry out the strategy needs to be a proud and gung-ho outfit. Going to sea in a warship to protect or to fight is demanding and dangerous, but it's also exhilarating and rewarding. With the proper strategy, force goals, 
and affordability measures in place, sailors will rise to the challenge, as they did in the 80s, and accomplish miracles. They will roam the seven seas and visit exotic ports to maintain and expand the U.S.-led global naval and economic system, helping the economy back home as well. They will steam in harm's way to defuse a crisis or deter a hostile power or terror gang from attacking a partner, ally, or U.S. citizen in trouble. And they will sail into combat knowing that they will prevail, given the quality of their strategy, their platforms, their sensors, and their weapons and the backing of the American people. To reach the American public and its representatives, we saw collaboration with Hollywood, National Geographic, and other American cultural icons as essential, not just some sort of PR frill, to inform and inspire all Americans, as well as our own sailors, by what my sea daddy Admiral Bud Zumwalt was fond of calling the fun and zest of going to sea and serving one's country and the free world. With this superb and provocative book, Dr. Jerry Hendricks has made a major contribution to the contemporary naval policy debate in this country. I hope that listeners will be as energized by its concepts, persuaded by its arguments, and motivated by its recommendations as I am. Captain Henry J. Jerry Hendricks is a retired naval officer, force structure analyst, and strategist who served in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, the Office of Net Assessment, the Director of the Secretary of the Navy's Advisory Panel, and is Director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. Following his retirement from active duty, he has served as a senior fellow in a Washington, D.C. think tank, and most recently, as a consultant to government and industry on strategic issues. He resides in Virginia with his wife and children. To provide and maintain a Navy will be available from Audible in late January 2021. This is Edison McDaniels. You've been listening to a special presentation of surgicalfiction.com. If you've enjoyed this, consider leaving a review. And don't hesitate to tell your friends about us and subscribe. Also, remember that I am an audiobook narrator. You can find many of the books I've narrated on Audible, searching under my name, Edison McDaniels. <laughs>